These are just really, really idiotic policies, even if you accept that man-made carbon emissions are creating a significant proportion of climate change and that climate change is going to be catastrophic. You're like, well, this hasn't been thought through. So that alarmism has taken over, so you can't even have a proper discussion. Today on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Ed Rennie, a writer, broadcaster and political strategist. Ed worked for several MPs and was also a Labour councillor. And it's quite a key, important thing where Labour and Conservatives became the same. They agreed about the EU. You know, Labour stopped being a Eurosceptic party. And they both signed up for this kind of uh, catastrophism around, around climate and the environment. He co-founded Climate Debate, an organisation aimed at tackling the green agenda by encouraging public debate and transparency in climate policy making. And there's certainly a debate, or should be a debate, about whether we're in a climate crisis or not. Because if you look at all the evidence, there's no actionable evidence that we're in an emergency as far as the climate is concerned. Um, there is no climate crisis. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Uh, Rennie, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. You've spent um, a lot of your working life in politics. Uh, I felt when I was younger there was quite an obvious uh, red team, blue team. You had your John Prescott's, you had your John Majors. Mm. Um, but in more recent times, Labour seemed to be moving away a bit from the kind of more far-left stuff. Um, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn's not allowed to stand, it seems. Mm. And the Tories are being less conservative, really. Do you think our, our political landscape is becoming more concentrated in the centre? Um, it, it's a centre. I don't think it's the centre. So I think that the main problem is that um, the Labour Party doesn't represent Labour anymore. The Conservatives aren't inherently Conservative anymore. And the Liberal Democrats are kind of failing on both their names. You know, they're, they're fundamentally undemocratic. You know, look at look at their behaviour towards the, the EU and trying to kind of overcome a referendum result that they didn't like. And they also failed quite drastically in terms of being liberal. You know, look at lockdown and they were just a sort of pro-ultra um, lockdown as the Labour Party. So all this effort, when Boris instinctively didn't want to lock down, you had Cummings, you had Labour and Liberal Democrats and Greens and everyone else going, no, no, lockdown more. You didn't lock down early enough, hard enough. Um, but it is the dominance of what you might call liberalism or perhaps more accurately liberal progressivism mm -hmm. or just progressivism because it's just not really liberal anymore. And that's the centre that's now dominating most of our political world. And it is ideological though it pretends it isn't. So it's actually the populists that are more pragmatic, I would say. This is progressivism coming in from the US, would you say? I think hmm, that's that's a tricky one because I mean I don't I don't think it necessarily originates in the USA. I mean part of it I mean the stuff with critical race theory and everything and perhaps some of the more militant trans stuff maybe kind of you could see a recent origin in the USA. But we've kind of we have our own academic institutions that have been doing have been kind of going that way, you know. While they've been coming more bureaucratic and and money making, they've they've also been becoming more kind of woke, kind of associated with critical race theory. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, you had the likes of, of um, Foucault and Gramsci, who were, I mean, they're very distinct, but I mean, Gra I think Gramsci saw 
that the communist revolution in Russia was going to fail. And he saw that it was going to fail, and he was right about this, was because of the cultural belief in um, particularly uh, the church, so Christianity in a, in a broader sense, but also the kind of the, the traditional family. So it wasn't, and, and that, and he saw those, and this is where, you know, non-Marxists, if you like, disagree with him. He saw those as kind of absolutely essential bedrocks of, um, you know, uh, property-owning capitalism, which, of course, Marxists are in, say they're against. Yeah. Um, so his, his conception was you actually have to um, corrode and uh, pull apart the institutions of the family and the, the Christian church in, in the broader sense, obviously Orthodox in, in Russia and whatnot, but more broadly Catholic and obviously in other countries Protestant. But you have to kind of corrode and, and damage and undermine the institution of the family and the institution of the church before any communist revolution can succeed. But certainly in Britain, you had a lot of lefties who kind of came out of university, they'd read Marx or whatever, and where were they going to go and work? They weren't going to work as entrepreneurs or capitalists, or very few of them did, if any did. And where did they all go? They were, well, we'll get jobs as teachers, we'll get jobs as academics. You know, so it wasn't, if you like, it, was, it wasn't necessarily intentional strategic application of what Gramsci was saying, but in terms of the academic institutions, that, that is what's happened, which is obviously very undermining of uh, proper academic inquiry, a proper, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of ironic that it's called critical race theory because actually there's a kind of suspension of critical thought. You're just sort of imbued with a, an ideology and a way of thinking, um, which of course is what they accuse, you know, more traditional academia of as well. But that's been, that would, that I'd say has been the source of, of much of our problems. And obviously that's infected a lot of this graduate class of politicians and people who work in the media now as well. Looking now um, more of the voters, mm. um, the 20th century, we saw 70% turnout at, at the polls, so, mm. uh, sometimes peaking at 80%. And in the 21st century, we're looking if we get 60% of people going out to vote. Mm. Why do you think there's um, less, uh, a smaller percentage of our population going out to vote these days? You know, Clay Cameron Blair could give quite inspiring speeches and whatever and, and um, you know, kind of get quite emotional in the, in the good way a good political speech should. But then maybe a couple of hours later or a couple of days later you forget most of what's been said because it really didn't mean anything. Um, and you have this big, I mean it's a consequence of, of, of the Blair Premiership really, is you have this falling away of, of a lot of working class voters, um, you know, in the millions just because it was felt at the time. So when, when the Blair government was re-elected with a landslide, because they dropped only one seat, the reason everyone thought, well, the turnout's gone down is because everyone just knew what the result was going to be. So there was no kind of... I mean, the high watermark, I think, for voting was 1992 with Kinnock versus Major. Um, but I think the problem is, is that there's no, there is certainly perceived, and to a very large degree it's true, there is no real ideological difference um, between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party anymore. You know, you've got, you've got the choice of Rishi Sunak, who's um, presenting himself as a technocrat, and um, Keir Starmer, who's presenting himself as a technocrat. Um, and 
you know, it may be quite likely that the people say, well, well, we'll vote for the one that's that's promising to give us more stuff. That may be what happens. Or, you know, they may vote for Sunak because he's a slightly more engaging and inspiring character. But it's also important that 1992, around the early 90s, was when we started pursuing um, policies that were related to what you would call climate change alarmism or climate alarmism which is the, the body politic sort of, just sort of, without really critically thinking about it at all, just accepting this idea that the world is in danger in the next 50 years um, or 30 years. And of course, all of these predictions have been made before and then they're rescheduled. So it's a bit Malthusian, it's like Malthusian population uh, explosion predictions, like we won't be able to feed ourselves by X date and then we reach that X date and it hasn't materialized, so it gets rescheduled. It's the same thing with the, the climate is going to reach this point of no return and it's always sort of just 20 years away or just 10 years away and then we reach that date and it gets rescheduled. And it's quite a key important thing where Labour and the Conservatives became the same. They agreed about the EU, you know, Labour stopped being a Eurosceptic party and they both signed up for this kind of uh, catastrophism around around climate and the environment um, and that's really started to more and more mean that if Labour do win um, the policy the policies won't be significantly different and there won't be any real difference to kind of boosting the economy um, unless we get off this idea that you, you can't have hydrocarbons um, and we have to go to sort of 50% wind power or something absurd like that um, then, then economic growth is just going to continue to be really, really sluggish. There are other things as well, like productivity and so on, but just that overall kind of pursuit of using less and less energy and not having it from a reliable, um, affordable source. It just affects, you know, households, businesses, industry in particular, but, you know, obviously pubs and shops, you know, have energy bills as well. And I think as we speak, their, their support from the government is coming to an end uh, on Friday this week, you know, so I mean, businesses are going to go going to go out of business because of this. You know, it's extraordinary. What can we do to en encourage the democratic involvement and get those people voting back up? So, um, Climate Debate UK, which is uh, something I co-founded with my colleague Ben Powell, we've been collaborating with Together, who came about from the Together Declaration. They were pushing against um, uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccine passports um, and seeing this as and a lot of coalesced around that. So they've sort of been creating a movement. Um, but I was talking to, to Alan, who's one of the, if not the founder, the, the key founder. And I was saying, you know, really, really what you guys are about is two principles, is freedom and democracy. Um, and I think together with, um, there's the Fair Fuel campaign. With, and there's, I mean, you wouldn't really call them mass membership organizations, but there are a lot of people who signed up, you know, to the emails. So they're getting these information and they're coming to meetings. And also, way beyond them, you've got people who are very, um, you know, pro, they're pro net zero, but they just see ULES and, um, you know, LTNs being extended to areas where they're just not needed and they would just make matters worse. So it's actually broader than any kind of environmental skepticism. 
But that is a real that is a real move where you can get people more politically active. But they need a bit of hope because they see this kind of bureaucratic blob which just ignores them and suppresses them. But the, the kind of paradox of that is that the more kind of anti-democratic things get around that and the more it suppresses economic growth. You know, obviously um, shops and, and restaurants in traffic controlled areas, they're going bust. You know, one of the best restaurants in my area is just it's managed to survive all the lockdowns over COVID, but in the end, because of you know lower traffic neighbourhoods and, and all the rest of it, just couldn't just couldn't make a profit. Um, so it has to get worse before it gets better, and people are gradually becoming more and more aware that this stuff is happening, and that happens also on the on the culture stuff. So a lot of people who are kind of against um, or kind of wouldn't be supportive of of gender self-identification. They kind of, until quite recently, they've been quite sanguine about it because they say, well, all, all these storms in the teacups, I mean, you know, it's just a small proportion of people. It's quite a natural reaction. 1% of people are trans. If they want to self-identify, that doesn't affect anything else. But they're beginning to see how ideological and aggressive it is and how it's corrupting their children's education. And so, again, there's this kind of um, real, real concern. But the the difficulty is, of course, is that, uh, as I was saying before, it's actually the people who are presenting themselves as pragmatic technocrats who are the real ideologues. The irony is, is that you need a kind of populist movement to democracy, which started getting going with the referendum on the EU. You need to be able to recapture that, but it's getting people who are just sort of sensible people who want to get on with their lives and don't want to be involved in politics. Um, they, they're realising, well, actually, I have to get involved because this is getting serious now. And I think that's going to accelerate. You mentioned your organisation, Climate Debate. Can mm. you tell us a bit about what your mission is and how you hope to achieve it? We saw that the, the alarmist narrative had kind of come about, but it hadn't, it hadn't become dominant through any process of discussion and debate. The refrain has always been, well, we've already had the debate. The debate's over... Uh, a high proportion, uh, 90, 98, 97, 96 percent of scientists agree that man-made climate change is a thing, that it's a threat to us. Discussion over, we just have to get on with it. And even if that was true of the science, it's certainly not been true of the, the policy um, portfolio that's attached to that. Um, so you have, for example, you have this completely uh, misguided thing where we're rushing straight to fully electric cars. Um, when people were buying hybrids, hybrid sales were going up, um, but so electric cars and hybrid cars do more environmental damage um, in their creation and also at the end of their, you know, your, your car's life. It's more, envir more environmentally damaging. Um, but over its lifetime, the fully electric car is the least efficient. So with, with certainly with the pet, to some extent with the petrol car, but with a hybrid, it's more realistic to think it makes up for the environmental damage it does in its creation and its, um, you know, dismembering at the end of its life. The performance kind of balances that out. But you've got to have non carbon-emitting energy sources. So obviously if your fully electric vehicle is ultimately being sourced from coal and oil and gas, 
then it makes a nonsense of, of going to fully electric. So, and that happened because of this alarmist thing, well, the world's going to end in the next 30 to 50 years. So, we, ooh, and, and you don't have a proper discussion, even based on, you know, the, the proper parameters of, of what they're aiming for. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's the, it's the same thing with these, similar, similar thing with these heat pumps. Um, of course, they are viable in some properties, but most properties they're not viable at all. So the push to abolish the gas boiler by, was it 2030 or 2035? The push to abolish the petrol car. These are just really, really idiotic policies. Even if you accept um, that man-made um, carbon emissions are creating a significant proportion of of climate change, and that climate change is going to be catastrophic. You're like, well, this hasn't been thought through. So that alarmism has taken over. So you can't even have a proper discussion. And again, the, U the ULEs and the low traffic neighborhoods as well. So we, why, we call it, why we call the word debate is we've got to have this debate. It's got to be had. So the first, if you like, denial is from the alarmist side, saying denying there's even debate. Well, yes, there is. And there is a debate about the science, and there is a debate about the policy, and there's certainly a debate, or should be a debate, about whether we're in a climate crisis or not. Because if you look at all the evidence, there's no actionable evidence that we're in an emergency as far as the climate is concerned. Um, there is no climate crisis. There's an increase in, there's a moderate increase in rainfall, um, and there's a moderate increase in, in very hot days, um, but not in every region of the world for either of those. Um, and in terms of floods, sea level rise, storms, all the sort of most uh, disrupting uh, climate or weather events, um, those have not been been getting worse. It's kind of it's, it's kind of this myth that's come about. It's just assumed. It's endlessly repeated, so it's assumed. But if you look at the observable evidence, it's just it's just not there. It's not this mysterious thing that we kind of, some experts at the US, UN, only they understand. Actually, this stuff is fairly accessible to most of the population. This is a sort of similar thing you get with economics, where the economics profession tries to pretend it's like, oh, you have to know all this stuff. Um, I mean, there is a proper place, of course, for this professional expertise, but the idea that it's not explicable to the general population, it, that's a view that permeates our media, particularly the BBC, but but the others as well, is that, well, we can't properly debate the science around climate change or climate change alarmism because, oh, the viewer will switch off, they'll get bored, or they won't understand. And it's, no, well, well actually, you have to go through a process of, of, of kind of engaging with the science uh, at a way that most GCSE or A-level students can manage. And that, frankly, that's, that's most of the population in that sense. We kind of led to believe there's there's two sides basically. There's mm. the side that saying there's no time for debate. Mm. Um, the world's about to end. We've got to give up certain freedoms and take certain measures. And there's the deniers, mm. which is a really quite loaded term in, in yes. our society now. How do we kind of overcome this and get to this point of an open and informed debate? It feels like quite a, quite a mission. Yes, because um, it's it's one it's one about language and objectivity. So uh, there's a battle over language. If you know, you, if you if you look at the, the the kind of cultural Marxists or whatever you, the progressivists or the, the different manifestations, they do want to control the language. That's the first thing they try and control. But what's really interesting about it and the, what's at the root of it is that they're 
they kind of espouse a kind of relativism. So, so they simultaneously argue for objective truths, but philosophically they don't really believe in objective truths. And this is why I talked earlier about Mill assuming objective goodness and objective truth. And so it's particularly difficult in the sense that um, you know, most, I think most ordinary people still believe that the notion of um, our people of goodwill through kind of reasoning can arrive more or less at what is objectively true. And also in morality and ethics, what is objectively good. Most people still believe that. But if you like our, our academia and our, our kind of political elites have in a sense abandoned that for kind of a really woolly liberalism as they, as, as, as they, would, as they would see it. Um, so in a sense it's even tougher than that. But that's what you have to start, you have to start asserting and reclaiming. No, there is this thing of objective truth. You know, not, not in a kind of religious sense, but in a kind of, in a reasoned, logical sense that, you know, I mean the most obvious one is that, you know, if you're born with male genitalia, you are male. And if you're born with female biology and female genitalia, you are, you are a woman. And that's the most obvious thing where objective truth is being attacked. But it becomes, it becomes easier to do it with, for example, stuff on climate because the policies that are being pursued to kind of avert this climate disaster are so damaging economically. And as they become more and more damaging, and people connect the dots. So they've yet to connect the dots between the dire economic circumstance and quantitative, easy, quantitative easing furlough and the lockdowns. They haven't really connected the dots on that yet. But they, they will, just because eventually the truth outs. It does out, and people generally want to know what the truth is, unless it's particularly uncomfortable for them. Um, and the sim a similar process has to happen in terms of climate change, change alarmism. And again, the, the, more broadly in our democracy, we, re, we re, have to rediscover proper debate and proper discussion. Um, it's why um, uh, Claire Fox's annual event, the Battle of Ideas, um, and there are other ones are, are away from London as well in other times of the year, and the kind of network that she's doing with schools and everything, uh, is particularly in sixth form, is so important because it's the things, the things that we have to conserve, we kind of been taking for granted. So we took for granted that our academic institutions would produce people who are well, who are well trained in critical thought and able to debate stuff. It's still there, just about, but we have to defend it and we have to assert it and we have to conserve, conserve it. Um, you know, the, the notion that a lot of these um, important rights for women in terms of equal rights for women for men in society and being respected as as equally intellectual or you know equally valued in society um, a lot of feminists are saying well this trans stuff is fundamentally under undermining that and to some extent there maybe was a complacency we started taking it for granted um, so that's that's the process which needs to happen and really, the biggest thing that has to be overcome is people's... Um, I mean, I think apathy is the, is the wrong word. It's people, people just don't want to get in, engaged, but also they're having to work much longer hours and everything else. So it's just a practical thing of how do I engage in politics when in order to put food on the table and pay for the energy bills, 
Um, I've got to work every hour that I can. Um, you know, it's a new, the new, the new slavery, if you like, in in, in many people's lives. And part of the problem is, of course, is that you have a, a significant section of the society that are comfortable and they're buffered from that. They've kind of got a buffer zone around their lives, and they understand what's going on and they support it in terms of this progressivist agenda or they're against it. So this is why a, a lot of people who are first coming to fight back against it are from the middle classes because they've used the fact that they've you know, got enough established wealth that they have the time and the energy and all the rest of it to engage. But as these policies, that they affect the working classes and the poor the most, so in the end, the fact that it damages their um, economic well-being and, you know, the schooling of their children, the more they see it affecting that, then the more active they will get, even though, in a very practical sense, they, they, don't, they don't have the time or, or, in many ways, for the right reasons, the wherewithal, because it's exhausting. F fighting this kind of amorphous blob that's always moving the goalposts is intellectually and, and physiologically tiring, you know. <laughs> We were told during the lockdowns, follow the science. Mm. I think there's some um, similarities with the, the climate agenda as well. Follow yes. the science, but not the science. Follow just this bit of science that, that we're telling you is the science. Yes. And, and you, you can't stray outside of that. And also, the, the fear is kind of used to make people adhere to, to that as well. Yeah. What, what do you think we can do to, to change that? So, it, it's about science not being this mystical thing and also that having people kind of engage with the reality that science is a process you know it's an intellectual process where you have a, a theory which you test you know so the 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 idea that that, that, that pushed the lockdown and pushed the vaccine to the younger age groups this this mantra of just like the science, you know, the science isn't just this one thing. You know, there, there are established scientific consensus, consensus on different areas. The point was there wasn't one during lockdown or when it came to giving the vaccine to people under 50, for example. Um, but that opposition within science was suppressed. So they're trying the same approach with the climate as they succeeded with in terms of inducing fear. Um, so they use scientific authority plus fear to kind of get people to just stay lock up, locked up in their homes. But you've ha you have the same thing with climate change alarmism. This disaster's coming, we've modeling, we've used this completely rubbish modeling by the way, and it's predicting this disaster. So you have to do X, Y, and Z. And the point is, is you're only ever going to break that if we don't do X, Y, and Z. Now the fact is, in a global sphere, we're not going to do X, Y, and Z that the climate alarmists are saying, because the Chinese aren't going to do it, India isn't going to do it, I very much doubt much of Africa will do it, certainly Nigeria, the fastest growing economy in, in Africa, isn't going to do it. And I think probably to some extent America isn't going to do it either. Um, the only, of course, viable way to get to net zero would be gas to nuclear. So you would 
delve into as much gas and other, in fact, other hydrocarbons as well, while you're building all the new micro-nuclear power stations or large nuclear power stations. So you do what France did. France realized when it built, so it, it was very recently at 80% energy nuclear capacity. And what it found when it built all those nuclear power stations was building one nuclear power station cost a hell of a lot of money. But if you built a lot, the economies of scale meant it was actually pretty cheap to do it. And that's what they did. Essentially, we sort of need to do the same across the Western world. You know, if we do want to pollute in terms of, of carbon dioxide less and, and the other pollutants that are associated with it. But you can see that that's not good enough for, for, for the green the, the green alarmists, the agenda that they're pursuing. Um, for understandable reasons, nuclear waste has a, is, a, is its own pollutant. Um, but it means you have no viable policy to pursue net zero that the world can follow um, unless battery technology advances to such a great extent in a very quick time, which doesn't look like it's likely to happen at all. Um, so the world is not going to do net zero. Britain and Europe um, may be dumb enough to pursue it, or it, it may, may only be Britain. <laughs> but the point is that the world isn't. So again, these predictions are going to be proven wrong. The one last topic I wanted to ask you about, you were uh, worked in politics for a long time and were also a founding member of Catholic Voices. Mm. Uh, recently we've seen the three candidates uh, racing for the leadership of the Scottish National Party, one of them being Kate Forbes, who is a traditional Christian, and there's a lot of talk in the media about her traditional Christian views mm. don't work in politics. Mm. Do, do you feel there's a kind of a negative view of religion in civic life generally? Not necessarily in, in civic life. I mean, a lot of our civic institutions have been captured by an anti-Christian perspective. Um, and that's ongoing, if you like, um, using things like critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, trans ideology, this, this kind of stuff. But um, if you like... Her, her, it was the more traditional ones in the sense that the, these were the battles that were being fought in the 60s, 70s and 80s over uh, abortion and, and homosexuality. Um, and there is, in the media world and in the political world, a particular hostility to Christianity because of those issues. But what was really interesting about the Kate Forbes thing is that it, it turned out to be another 52-48 result. So uh, Hamza Youssef uh, got 52% of the membership and she, in, when all the votes were counted up, she, she got 48%. And what also was apparent during that campaign was that um, she was the most popular candidate when the public were polled. I mean, it wasn't a huge difference. Everyone was polling quite low because no one knew who any of, any of the three were. Um, but nevertheless, she consistently polled in the lead. And the fact that she came a very close second shows that there's a lot of the members who either agree and the public maybe kind of quietly agree that, you know, um, uh, you know, it, it's fine. It's fine for Christians to be against um, living active homosexuality and to be against more obviously abortion. Um, so that they kind of share those religious beliefs, if much more quietly and circumspectly. Mm. Or, and this is probably the lar much larger reality, is that they're completely fine with you, Kate Forbes, believing that, 
as long as you're not going to actively try and reverse the freedoms that we've won for, for, for women in terms of their understanding of, of, of abortion as not just a decriminalized thing, but you know, as more perceived as a right, um, particularly for the activists. Um, but what you have is um, probably a, a minority that's much smaller than it thinks it is, um, just can't, just don't like being around people who disagree with them on those two issues. And also you, you get it to a certain extent with just people believing in God. You get some people who are actually hostile to being around people who believe in God as well. But it is, the, the hostility is there, it's just that the people who are hostile are in a much smaller minority than I think they understand or even perhaps the rest of people understand. But the hostility remains as intense and you do get, um, you know, people who come forward as candidates in the three main parties who either are effectively blocked from becoming a candidate in a, in a perceived winnable seat or, or a safe seat for their party. They're actively blocked, or at least the attempt is made. And in fact, I would say if, if you're discovered to have an orthodox uh, view against um, abortion or, or any aspect of the LGBT agenda, to be honest, you don't have to be, you know, even if you've kind of vote for some aspects and not others, they will, they will, the attempt to block you will be made and it will be made very strenuously. They might not always succeed. Um, I don't think, um, I mean, I, it's quite likely Kate Forbes will be the next leader of the SNP because we've had that fight now. It's been done, and when they, if, if there's a new leadership election, which might come sooner than people think, um, they'll attempt that hoo-ha again, mm -hmm. but obviously it's not going to be an effective second time around. It's like, well, we all know this now, you know. Everybody, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you.